in the back of my mind, I was also thinking like the beauty industry is there, there's much more women in that industry. Like there's, this will be so much easier or, or at least not as difficult, let's say, as this other field that I was in, that's like construction and buildings and infrastructure, et cetera. Right. Um, and then I get into it and recognize that it has very little to do with being in the beauty industry and more with being a founder, um, and going after venture capital dollars. And that is a very, very, the numbers are so minuscule as you know, you and I have discussed, it's less than 2%. Hey, this is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm your host, Curtis Rouser. Any woman who travels understands the appeal of the Renzo box. A fully personalized palette of your favorite brands and products, it eliminates the need for a messy makeup bag. An architect by training, founder Renee Graham views problems in their solutions spatially. So one day when the contents of her makeup bag spilled out on a moving train, she got to thinking and to work. Earlier this summer, Renee was featured on Epicenter's Disruptors panel in Houston, sponsored by UBS. She represents disruption in multiple ways, and Epicenter's publisher, Esmita Kalita, spoke to her about this and much more. What is Renzo Box and where did the idea for it come about? Uh, yes, Renzo Box, we transform your makeup bag into a elevated Following this conversation, we reached out to Rahas Desai, UBS Senior Vice President of Wealth Management, for answers to Renee's question about wealth creation. Here's what he had to say. And so you don't have to deal with the messy makeup bag. As Rahas explained, with proper that, planning, you can increase the chances that you can have a generational so wealth for a family, for your community that stands the test of time. Helping women put to read more from our conversation or to build and your own rental box, click the links you, in our show um, notes. And your, and your brand literally when That's I was all on for the today. road. So I was at South thanks by for listening. Southwest and in thanks Austin. for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. For more stories like this, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter at epicenter-nyc.com. Intro music is all the pretty words that I care for you. You can find more of their music on their website, linked to in our podcast description. Foundation and earrings and another and uh, my hairbrush and two like to travel as a woman is like there's a lot of stuff that goes into a lot of other stuff. Um, tell me, was it was it that that you were trying to disrupt, or was there um, some other way that you were approaching this problem? It really was about making the the routine of getting ready in the morning and being prepared for my day um, and for women to be prepared for their day to feel seamless and more effortless and less of this problem and less of less of less that it's, it's work. You know, I mean, this is our face that we're talking about. And the, the kind of aha moment and the impetus of like where Renzo Box started, I was on a train. I was on my way to work and I was, I had pulled an all nighter because I had this big presentation that day and I pulled out my makeup bag and I'm on the train, like furiously just, you know, I want to look good for this presentation. That's it. I put in all this hard work the night before and the weeks prior. And I want to make sure that, you know, I look presentable that day. And it is, you know, quite frankly, a disaster to try to put on your makeup. There's like 20 different things you're trying to juggle. And I'm sitting on this train. I can't find what I'm looking for in my makeup bag. I do the raccoon dig. I call it the raccoon dig, you know, in the makeup bag. 
And I, I still can't find it. So I, I, I dumped it out on the seat next to me, which you've probably dumped out your makeup bag before. Um, and as I, you know, was sitting there applying my makeup, the train did this jolt and all of my makeup went flying. And so now, you know, I'm frustrated. I'm flustered. I'm my, my makeup half put on, you know, I'm five minutes from my destination and I'm, I'm looking like a crazy person and I'm running around just, you know, even more upset and, 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 and just trying to make sure I look decent. <laughs> and I think that it was, yes, it was about the makeup bag, but it was also about this, this lack of efficiency when it comes mm -hmm. to, um, to, to products for women, when it comes to how we think about our day, it's just, it's like, this should not be the thing that's causing me more stress and anxiety when I'm getting ready in the morning. And when I'm getting ready for my work day, it should be an experience that makes me feel more confident in what I'm about to go do. And it should be so seamless and effort effortless. It almost falls to the background. Your background is in um, design and architecture, right? I'm just wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about how that relates. You know, as an architect, I think about problems spatially. You know, when I see um, the interaction of, of people and objects and things, like the first thing that comes to my brain is like, I, I just, I see how things come together in a seamless way. And as an architect, I did that exact thing when I was on that train I'm running around picking everything up and I'm putting it back into my makeup bag and I'm sitting here going, okay, this palette has 10 colors in it. I only use two. Why am I carrying around these 10? This other one has four colors in it. I only use one. And I'm just sitting here doing the spatial analysis of like, all right, if I, if I can pull these two and I, how do I combine it with that thing? And, and this sort of, this sort of, you know, like where do my brushes go and, and how do I get my foundation in there? And, and all these kinds of things. It's like, this is a spatial problem. And um, it's about using, it's, a, it's about elevating the experience and creating something beautiful, right? That's what a piece of, that's what architecture is. Uh, it's a beautiful object that is also functional and we live in it and we interact with it as humans. And so Renzo Box is very much like that. It's just like a miniature piece of architecture. That's so beautiful to um, think of. So you run a fashion, like your, your company would be considered in the vertical of fashion and beauty, which are industries you, I think, more often associate with New York, Los Angeles. You've decided to base your company in Austin. I'm disrupting an industry, um, which by definition means to not follow the path that everyone else has followed, right? And uh, so while you know, there are, there are certainly networks and people and thing, you know, um, uh, things that I need to be involved with in both LA and New York and in the beauty scene and in the fashion scene, you know, I kind of want to separate myself and give myself breathing room and space to be creative and to do something different where I don't feel shackled by everything that's going on around me. And I think Austin really provides, um, a bit of, a bit of both things where it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty easy for me to jump on a plane and go to New York or LA, right. I'm, I'm in the middle of the country. <laughs> um, and Austin has, is this creative hotbed, um, that is very much fueled on innovation and young minds and technology. And there is a support group and network of, of not only entrepreneurs, but women entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. um, that are building incredible things. And I thought, this is where I need to place these roots. It's also a great business decision for me because 
I have, um, I've, I've, I'm born and raised Texan. I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So a lot of my business contacts who know me, know my work ethic, they, you know, they don't know if I can do anything in the beauty industry, but they know pretty much everything I pick up, I'm going to run with it and I'm going to like run through brick walls. And, you know, those, that's the community and the people that I needed around me in the early days. And then of course, like I said, I could always go to LA or New York. That's such an important point. I love also, um, whether you know this or not, you're kind of breaking down the elements of community and entrepreneur needs, right? So we often focus on businesses that are building communities and that's why Epicenter loves you so much, but there's clearly a community you had before you did this. And that seems a necessary part of your journey. Speaking of that, is there anything that you've um, learned or realized that in hindsight, you wish you would have known sooner? Is there, is there any part of the entrepreneurial process that might be kind of a cautionary tale for someone listening right now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you ask that question, the, the first thing that jumps out at me is just how like the stats around women <laughs> around female um, entrepreneurs and founders that are building businesses. Um, you know, the, the funding landscape is, is, is difficult, you know, no matter, no matter who you are looking for, if you're, if you're in a business and are building a business in a company that is venture backable, uh, it's very difficult to secure venture capital dollars. It's just, I didn't realize how, how, horrific the numbers are for women. Um, in fact, what's kind of interesting is I was, you know, architecture, my first love, <laughs> uh, is a profession that I, you know, I profoundly love the discipline, but I despise the industry because mm. it is so dominated and it's so difficult for women. You know, you can imagine me walking onto a construction site, <laughs> you know, and it's just, it's hard to get taken seriously. And the numbers are, are, are terrible in architecture, like less than 18%, less than 20% of, of licensed architects are women. When I was, you know, in the field and practicing, it was less than 10%. So it's trending in the right direction, but it's still something that was very difficult. And, you know, lo and behold, as I'm, you know, with my frustrations, I'm in the back of my mind, I was also thinking like the beauty industry is there, there's much more women in that industry. Like there's, this will be so much easier or, or at least not as difficult, let's say, as this other field that I was in, that's like construction and buildings and infrastructure, et cetera. Right. Um, and then I get into it and recognize that it has very little to do with being in the beauty industry and more with being a founder, um, and going after venture capital dollars. And that is a very, very, the numbers are so minuscule as you know, you and I have discussed, it's less than 2%. Yeah. Um, and that's a really difficult number to think about. That's like less than the number of people that get admitted to Harvard. I wish I had really known that. <laughs> yeah. Along those lines, what's also interesting is that you don't get the same amount of funding, but the measurement for the success of your business is, it has to be up there or you know, that phrase twice as good as those who are better funded. I mean, that was one of my surprises was that I'm not going to be supported in the same way, but I'll be definitely held up to the same standards of everybody standard. else. And so can I ask, do you, 
you know, we had you come on a panel in Houston that was sponsored by UBS, and we wanted to make sure if you had questions um, for UBS, which is one of the largest um, financial advising companies in the world, is there anything that comes to mind um, from that access to expertise, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I come from a very humble background. Uh, my mom is an immigrant, and my dad is from a very small town in East Texas. He grew up on a farm. <laughs> and so my relationship and understanding to um, to wealth, to money, um, is, is very limited. You know, it's in, in network that I've created and built over my life. And what I've come to learn is that... There's, you know, kind of a, a different approach to to wealth and to money from people who have had it all of their life, maybe through family or, um, you know, maybe through through early wins and successes in their life, however it is. But there's there's another way to approach um, to approach money almost as a tool, you know, versus I think someone who has has come from nothing. It's just been this like thing to acquire to like, you know, how do I get access to it? Yeah. Right? It's this, this like ethereal sort of thing. And um, of course, this has changed for me over time. But I wonder, like, how do we bridge that gap between um, that that different frame of mind or the knowledge set or like how to approach um, money as, as simply a tool or a resource? Because you know, now that I'm building and now that I'm, I'm building and have been building Renzo Box, I see it as something much different um, versus, you know, the little girl who grew up with immigrant parent mom just scraping by and, and trying to um, trying to make ends meet. And I wonder, like, is there is there a relationship with building financial wealth and financial freedom for not only myself, but for generations for my next generation and beyond me, um, that I can I can learn and and understand and figure out and have access to, in a way that uh, that isn't really read readily available. You know, I love that question because it it shifts uh, money as aspirational almost to something that once you're a part of it, now what? Which hopefully then makes it less fragile for us because. Yes. Um, feels like our parents work so hard to get to a certain level and it's like, okay, we're here. How do we not screw this up? But also you guys are all up there. Yes. So I think that's the gap you're talking about that. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. And it feels, you know, it feels vast. It feels like that gap is, is quite vast. Uh, and I'm not sure if, you know, maybe that's just my perspective on it because I'm, you know, still making my way through the world uh, but I would, I would love to just understand it better. That's we, we can, we can get some answers on that front. Um, my last question to you is the classic epicenter question for people who are listening or watching, um, or becoming familiar with, um, you and your amazing product. What do you need? Great question. <laughs> I need access to capital, plain and simple. Um, and I know it it's maybe sounds like a cliche, but it just is what it is. You can't build amazing new things without resources to do it. And when it comes to resources, when it comes to resources in terms of knowledge, plenty of that available. I've been part of incredible programs from the Tory Birch Fellowship, programs with Andreessen Horowitz, 
that are wonderful in providing, you know, knowledge and to access to even to, to people, to, to networks. Uh, but at the end of the day, it costs money to keep the lights on. It costs money to pay people. It costs money to to make sure that we have inventory coming in and going out. You know, all of these things, um, I simply cannot just work and work and work <laughs> and trade it for that. Um, turns out some of these things just require capital. And yeah. there's there hasn't been enough available um, for, for me to full, fulfill my vision at the pace that I want to do it. And that's okay. I'm still working on it, but that is absolutely the number one need. I'm glad you articulated that. And we'll try to put this in the hands of people who can act upon that. And thank you, Renee, as always, for just being so honest with us um, and um, really accessible about the ups and downs of your journey. It's, it's really, really inspiring. Following this conversation, we reached out to Rahas Desai, UBS Senior Vice President of Wealth Management, for answers to Renee's questions about wealth creation. Here's what he had to say. So Renee Graham, who was on the Disruptors panel that UBS and Epicenter um, co-hosted in Houston, um, mm -hmm. her question was, how do we bridge the gap between a different frame of mind or the knowledge set on how to approach money as simply a tool or a resource? Mm -hmm. And if I could paraphrase this question a little bit, um, Renee, who's the daughter of an immigrant, um, said, you know, her family worked really hard to accumulate wealth just to kind of make money. Um, and it sounds like she's asking about how to actually make money work for us instead. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about bridging that gap. Yeah, I'm happy to, you know, as an immigrant myself and, you know, as, as an immigrant, as a child of immigrants, my early relationship with money was very similar to, you know, how Renee viewed it, right? You know, the question is always, do we have enough? Um, it's a relationship with scarcity, you know? And so, you know, for many, that relationship exists without, you know, really the ability to change the outcome. Uh, but for, you know, the way to really move beyond that and to really talk about, to go from accumulation and thinking about, you know, do we have enough to thinking about, you, you know, you know, what am I missing? And that's when you actually have wealth is really around education, right? Specifically financial literacy. Uh, it's something that we don't necessarily spend a lot of time on, but if we can pivot that mindset that as we accumulate, we should think about, you know, if we have a little bit of extra income, how we can save, how we can invest, how we can grow. If we can bring, uh, you know, education to whether it's community centers where immigrants might be spending a significant amount of time, high school, middle school, bringing in parents through PTAs where there is this level of immigration. You know, I think, you know, you can have a conversation around financial literacy and that helps to essentially change the paradigm of, you know, is this enough to, you know, what am I missing and how can I grow this for not just me, but for my children and my grandchildren? And that can be a pretty powerful way to have generational wealth really grow through, you know, decades of time in this country as an immigrant. That's great. I think that segues us a little bit to the next question, which um, from Renee, and I'm quoting directly, is there a relationship with building financial wealth and financial freedom for not only myself, but for future generations, my next generation and beyond me? 
And I, I just think this question um, in some ways is a selfless one, right? How do we build wealth, um, not just for ourselves, but uh, to withstand um, time, right, for future generations? So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, there's, the statistics are that if you accumulate wealth, um, within three generations, without proper planning, there's a significant loss of wealth. So it's never that wealth remains static. You're either you know accumulating it or losing it, right? And so, you know, with proper planning, you can increase the chances that you can have a generational wealth for a family, for your community, uh, you know, that really lasts the you know the test of time here. Uh, building structure around you know, your, your, your wealth, you know, gives you the ability to really focus on liquidity, longevity, and legacy, right? We try to think about wealth in these three major buckets. And so if you can focus on your liquidity, which is, you know, your immediate needs, your expenses, you know, big purchases, then you can plan for longevity, which is the, the how long you're going to be alive. Um, and you can have a much longer time horizon from that perspective. And if you can think about longevity that way, then comes legacy, whether that legacy is, you know, you know, for your family, for your community, for charity. It gives you the ability in a structured way to really think about how wealth can grow and last way, you know, significantly longer than we may be alive. And, and it's that test of time in terms of planning around wealth that we have seen when you look back in history of, of how these families have been able to create names for themselves, whether it's in terms of charitable reasons or just, you know, broadly creating wealth. And so around structuring and planning is the real way to really think about how we can have generational wealth and create financial freedom. And then the legacy component, which has a large component of giving back to community as well as your next generation, can uplift those around you, you know, from a community way, especially if there is an immigrant component, because immigrants have such a strong community nexus with each other. As Raha has explained, with proper planning, you can increase the chances that you can have a generational wealth for a family, for your community that stays the test of time. To read from our conversation or to build your own rental box, click the links in our show notes. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. For more stories like this, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at epicenter-nyc.com. Our intro music is All the Pretty Words by Kerevika. You can find more of their music on their website linked to in our podcast description.